Section 10 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 1 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5 Chartism, Part 1. It cannot, however, be said that all the omens under which the new queen's reign opened at home were as auspicious as the coincidences which made it contemporary with the first chapters of these new and noble developments in the history of science and invention on the contrary it began amid many grim and unpromising conditions in our social affairs the winter of eighteen thirty seven and eight was one of unusual severity and distress there would have been much discontent and grumbling in any case among the class described by french writers as the proletaires but the complaints were aggravated by a common belief that the young queen was wholly under the influence of a frivolous and selfish minister who occupied her with amusements while the poor were starving it does not appear that there was at any time the slightest justification for such a belief but it prevailed among the working classes and the poor very generally and added to the sufferings of genuine want the bitterness of imaginary wrong popular education was little looked after so far as the state was concerned might be said not to be looked after at all the laws of political economy were as yet only within the appreciation of a few who were regarded not uncommonly because of their theories somewhat as phrenologists or mesmerists might be looked on in a more enlightened time some writers have made a great deal of the case of tom and his disciples as evidence of the extraordinary ignorance that prevailed tom was a broken-down brewer and in fact a madman who had for some time been going about in canterbury and other parts of kent bedizened in fantastic costume and styling himself at first sir william courtney of powderham castle knight of malta king of jerusalem king of the gypsy races and we know not what else he announced himself as a great political reformer and for a while he succeeded in getting many to believe in and support him he was afterwards confined for some time in a lunatic asylum and when he came out he presented himself to the ignorant peasantry in the character of a second messiah he found many followers and believers again among a humbler class indeed than those whom he had formerly won over much of his influence over the poor kentish labourers was due to his denunciations of the new poor law which was then popularly hated and feared with an almost insane intensity of feeling tom told them he had come to regenerate the whole world and also to save his followers from the new poor law and the latter announcement commended the former he assembled a crowd of his supporters and undertook to lead them to an attack on canterbury with his own hand he shot dead a policeman who endeavoured to oppose his movements exactly as a saviour of society of bolder pretensions and greater success did at boulogne not long after two companies of soldiers came out from canterbury to disperse the rioters the officer in command was shot dead by tom tom's followers then charged the unexpecting soldiers so fiercely that for a moment there was some confusion but the second company fired a volley which stretched tom and several of his adherents lifeless on the field that was an end of the rising 
several of tom's followers were afterwards tried for murder convicted and sentenced but some pity was felt for their ignorance and their delusion and they were not consigned to death long after the fall of their preposterous hero and saint many of tom's disciples believed that he would return from the grave to carry out the promised work of his mission all this was lamentable but could hardly be regarded as specially characteristic of the early years of the present reign the tom delusion was not much more absurd than the tick-borne mania of a later day down to our own time there are men and women among the social democrats of cultured germany who still cherish the hope that their idol ferdinand lasalle will come back from the dead to lead and guide them but there were political and social dangers in the opening of the present reign more serious than any that could have been conjured up by a crazy man in a fantastic dress there were delusions having deeper roots and showing a more inviting shelter than any that a religious fanatic of the vulgar type could cause to spring up in our society only a few weeks after the coronation of the queen a great radical meeting was held in birmingham a manifesto was adopted there which afterwards came to be known as the chartist petition with that moment chartism began to be one of the most disturbing influences of the political life of the country it is a movement which although its influence may now be said to have wholly passed away well deserves to have its history fully written for ten years it agitated england it sometimes seemed to threaten an actual uprising of all the proletaire against what was then the political and social institutions of the country it might have been a very serious danger if the state had been involved in any external difficulties it was backed by much genuine enthusiasm passion and intelligence it appealed strongly and naturally to whatever there was of discontent among the working classes it afforded a most acceptable and convenient means by which ambitious politicians of the self-seeking order could raise themselves into temporary importance its fierce and fitful flame went out at last under the influence of the strong clear and steady light of political reform and education the one great lesson it teaches is that political agitation lives and is formidable only by virtue of what is reasonable in its demands thousands of ignorant and miserable men all over the country joined the chartist agitation who cared nothing about the substantial value of its political claims they were poor they were overworked they were badly paid their lives were altogether wretched they got into their heads some wild idea that the people's charter would give them better food and wages and lighter work if it were obtained and that for that very reason the aristocrats and the officials would not grant it no political concessions could really have satisfied these men if the charter had been granted in eighteen thirty eight they would no doubt have been as dissatisfied as ever in eighteen thirty nine but the discontent of these poor creatures would have brought with it little danger to the state if it had not become part of the support of an organization which could show some sound and good reason for the demands it made the moment that the clear and practical political grievances were dealt with the organization melted away vague discontent however natural and excusable it may be 
is only formidable in politics when it helps to swell the strength and the numbers of a crowd which calls for some reform that can be made and is withheld one of the vulgarest fallacies of statecraft is to declare that it is of no use granting the reforms which would satisfy reasonable demands because there are still unreasonable agitators whom these will not satisfy get the reasonable man on your side and you need not fear the unreasonable this is the lesson taught to statesmen by the chartist agitation a funeral oration over chartism was pronounced by sir john campbell then attorney-general afterwards lord chief justice campbell at a public dinner at edinburgh on october twenty fourth eighteen thirty nine he spoke at some length and with some complacency of chartism as an agitation which had passed away some ten days afterwards occurred the most formidable outburst of chartism that had been known up to that time and chartism continued to be an active and a disturbing influence in england for nearly ten years after if sir john campbell had told his friends and constituents at the edinburgh dinner that the influence of chartism was just about to make itself really felt he would have shown himself a somewhat more acute politician than we now understand him to be seldom has a public man setting up to be a political authority made a worse hit than he did in that memorable declaration campbell was indeed only a clever shrewd lawyer of the hard and narrow class he never made any pretensions to statesmanship or even to great political knowledge and his unfortunate blunder might be passed over without notice were it not that it illustrates fairly enough the manner in which men of better information and judgment than he were at that time in the habit of disposing of all inconvenient political problems the attorney-general was aware that there had been a few riots and a few arrests and that the law had been what he would call vindicated and as he had no manner of sympathy with the motives which could lead men to distress themselves and their friends about imaginary charters he assumed that there was an end of the matter it did not occur to him to ask himself whether there might not be some underlying causes to explain if not to excuse the agitation that just then began to disturb the country and that continued to disturb it for so many years even if he had inquired into the subject it is not likely that he would have come to any wiser conclusion about it the dramatic instinct if we may be allowed to call it so which enables a man to put himself for the moment into the condition and mood of men entirely unlike himself in feelings and conditions is an indispensable element of real statesmanship but it is the rarest of all gifts among politicians of the second order if sir john campbell had turned his attention to the chartist question he would only have found that a number of men for the most part poor and ignorant were complaining of grievances where he could not for himself see any substantial grievances at all that would have been enough for him if a solid wealthy and rising lawyer could not see any cause for grumbling he would have made up his mind that no reasonable persons worthy the consideration of sensible legislators would continue to grumble after they had been told by those in authority that it was their business to keep quiet but if he had on the other hand 
looked with the light of sympathetic intelligence of that dramatic instinct which has just been mentioned at the condition of the classes among whom chartism was then rife he would have seen that it was not likely the agitation could be put down by a few prosecutions and a few arrests and the censure of a prosperous attorney-general he would have seen that chartism was not a cause but a consequence the intelligence of a very ordinary man who approached the question in an impartial mood might have seen that chartism was the expression of a vague discontent with very positive grievances and evils we have in our time outlived the days of political abstractions the catchwords which thrilled our forefathers with emotion on one side or the other fall with hardly any meaning on our ears we smile at such phrases as the rights of man we hardly know what is meant by talking of the people as the words were used long ago when the people was understood to mean a vast mass of wronged persons who had no representation and were oppressed by privilege and the aristocracy we seldom talk of liberty any one venturing to found a theory or even a declamation on some supposed deprival of liberty would soon find himself in the awkward position of being called on to give a scientific definition of what he understood liberty to be he would be as much puzzled as were certain english working men who desiring to express to mr john stuart mill their sympathy with what they called in the slang of continental democracy the revolution were calmly bidden by the great liberal thinker to ask themselves what they meant by the revolution which revolution what revolution and why they sympathized with it but perhaps we are all a little too apt to think that because these abstractions have no living meaning now they never had any living meaning at all they convey no manner of clear idea in england now but it does not by any means follow that they never conveyed any such idea the phrase which mr mill so properly condemned when he found it in the mouths of english working men had a very intelligible and distinct meaning when it first came to be used in france and throughout the continent the revolution expressed a clear reality as recognizable by the intelligence of all who heard it as the name of free trade or ultramontanism to men of our time the revolution was the principle which was asserting all over europe the overthrow of the old absolute power of kings and it described it just as well as any word could do it is meaningless in our day for the very reason that it was full of meaning then so it was with the people and the rights of the people and the rights of labour and all the other grandiloquent phrases which seem to us so empty and so meaningless now they are empty and meaningless at the present hour but they have no application now chiefly because they had application then the reform bill of eighteen thirty two had been necessarily and perhaps naturally a class measure it had done great things for the constitutional system of england it had averted a revolution which without some such concession would probably have been inevitable it had settled forever the question which was so fiercely and so gravely debated during the discussions of the reform years whether the english constitution is or is not based upon a system of popular representation to many at present it may seem hardly credible that sane men could have denied the existence of the representative principle 
but during the debates on the great reform bill such a denial was the strong point of many of the leading opponents of the measure including the duke of wellington himself the principle of the constitution it was soberly argued is that the sovereign invites whatever communities or interests he thinks fit to send in persons to parliament to take counsel with him on the affairs of the nation this idea was got rid of by the reform bill that bill abolished fifty-six nomination or rotten boroughs and took away half the representation from thirty others it disposed of the seats thus obtained by giving sixty-five additional representatives to the counties and conferring the right of returning members on manchester leeds birmingham and some thirty-nine large and prosperous towns which had previously had no representation while as lord john russell said in his speech when he introduced the bill in march eighteen thirty one a ruined mound sent two representatives to parliament three niches in a stone wall sent two representatives to parliament a park where no houses were to be seen sent two representatives to parliament the bill introduced a ten pound household qualification for boroughs and extended the county franchise to leaseholders and copyholders but it left the working classes almost altogether out of the franchise not merely did it confer no political emancipation on them but it took away in many places the peculiar franchises which made the working men voters there were communities such for example as that of preston and lancashire where the system of franchise existing created something like universal suffrage all this was smoothed away if such an expression may be used by the reform bill in truth the reform bill broke down the monopoly which the aristocracy and landed classes had enjoyed and admitted the middle classes to a share of the law-making power the representation was divided between the aristocracy and the middle class instead of being as before the exclusive possession of the former End of section ten